0: Hofstra's morning wake-up call Morning wake-up call call. Lively talk Long Island life National National news International issues Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra
1: students You're listening to the Hofstra morning wake-up call Only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University
2: All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra morning wake-up call Do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees.
1: All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
0: Good morning, y'all. Y'all listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio South. This is the Monday edition of the Morning Wake-Up Call. We're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues as always. I'm your producer, Becca Williams, joined today by Michaela and Abigail. We have a lot to discuss this morning. We've got the state budget that was just approved on Saturday, book banning in schools, which is becoming a major issue, especially in Florida, and the SpaceX. What's new with that? Michaela, Abigail, how are y'all doing this morning?
3: I'm exhausted. I don't know about you. I've been working all week. Yeah. like a
4: weekend at all. I guess there's something about this past weekend that I guess has us all tired. And I guess the three of us all worked. So it explains that
0: yeah i was definitely working all weekend but i mean i just know that i've got some severe senioritis i'm i'm just like i'm counting down the weeks literally i think we have like four more weeks left in the semester not counting our like final week because i'm not counting that
4: so then it's four yeah Yeah. because last week was six so if Mm -hmm. you don't count final week it's four Yeah. yeah
0: i don't count final week that might be cheating but you, we're, we're not really gonna have classes so i'm not counting yeah it yet. doesn't count yeah. you only
4: have to come in for
3: that one test or whatever
4: exactly test you have.
0: exactly
3: i'm surprised how like you know april's like quickly going by i feel like yesterday's april 1st and i'm like what's going on I
0: know. yeah it is i'm taking my senior pictures today like really i yeah, think by tomorrow are you so. excited <laughs> they yeah. told us to dress in business the, casual yeah or, like, i don't know
4: what that means i just want like the pictures with the my cap and gown like i don't really yeah. care for like the other picture, yeah. I'm definitely
0: it. not coming dressed in business casual because <laughs> <laughs> that's be like kind of ugly, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, me and Abigail were both getting ready to graduate. Kind of sad, but kind of exciting, right?
4: It's it's like exciting, but I'm like scary at the same time because mm-hmm. I don't know what's gonna happen after. Like, yeah. I'm still debating if I want to go to grad school, so I'm just gonna take that like year gap. But you know just starting like your actual job Mm -hmm. and your what you studied for is a little scary but it's exciting so i'm ready for whatever it throws at us
0: oh my gosh i couldn't i don't think i could do any more school after this i can't i couldn't do grad school
4: (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't know i'm still debating it will i do it probably not but (laughs) i'm still gonna have that mentality in my head that maybe i can
0: Michaela, what about you? I know you've got a little bit more time left yeah, here, but uh, well, are you ready to graduate?
3: Yeah, I'm ready to graduate. I'm, like, looking forward to, because after, like, college, I'm going to, like, hopefully try to get into an aviation. I want to be up on a pilot. Oh. So, like, I'm really hoping, like, you know, after, that's the next leap after this. So, like, I'm excited. <laughs> Whoa, that's so cool. Yeah, that is cool. That, I saw Top
4: Gun yesterday for, like, the first time, yeah. so it's <laughs> kind of funny you said that. <laughs> I've never
0: seen. Was it's it so good? good?
4: Yeah, it's good. And the new one's coming out in the summer. I mean, Memorial Day weekend, so I think definitely Yeah, maybe watch I it. should
0: watch it so I can get ready for the new release. Well, I mean, hats off to you, Michaela, because I could not, like fly a plane that sounds so scary to me
3: oh no it's really thrilling i just love being on a plane i love that environment i feel like multiple times already so i'm like you've flown that. already no i've, flown, but I've been on multiple oh, planes. oh okay, okay. <laughs> just, like, all ones, big ones i'm just excited i have family members who are already pilots so i'm like this isn't my what? Like, no oh, yeah. i can do this <laughs> yeah
0: definitely oh my gosh wow maybe one day i'll like i'll be super rich and i'll like pay Michaela lots and lots of money to like fly me sounds good, sounds good. <laughs> fly your private jet, like. yeah <laughs> okay well enough about the future right now we've got enough stuff going on as it is uh this saturday governor hochel signed in the 220 billion dollar state budget uh, this was over a week late from the original deadline of april 1st because there was a, a lot of you know debate between the two sides on what should go into the budget and what shouldn't as always, uh, the budget is going to tackle voter-related issues, and a lot of that faced the major pushback. Uh, Democrats were calling for more spending on health care workers rather than spending on the $850 million supporting a new stadium for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, but there were a few things that the budget is going to do that I chose to uh, pinpoint for you guys this morning because they are some of the largest things in the budget. So. billion is going to go towards a $3 an hour raise for home care workers. So that's the people that are staying home with whether that be like elderly people or really just anyone that needs that extra help at home. Uh, $1.2 billion is going to be used in bonuses for health care workers. Those who were working during the pandemic, you know, obviously they probably deserve a little bit extra money. Uh, it's going to be taking 16 cents off the cost of a gallon of gas through December. I think we're all pretty excited about that. A little cheaper gas until December. $2.2 billion going towards a one-time property tax rebate for low-middle-income households. That'll come through this fall. Uh, we're also going to be allowing liquor and wine to be available for takeout and delivery for the next three years, as long as your purchase has a food item along with it. You can't just get the alcohol delivered. Uh, it's expanding kendra's law which means that courts will be able to order more people to undergo outpatient treatment if they're perceived as a threat to themselves or others 250 million dollars to assist with unpaid utility bills and 925 million dollars for landlords for overdue rent Uh, there are a few more points on the budget but those are the main ones Uh, obviously this is pretty focused in covid we're seeing like you know the Unpaid utility bills, the rent help, the uh, healthcare worker bonuses. So it is pretty focused in COVID. But Abigail, Michaela, what stood out to you guys about the budget?
3: Well, the Kendra Law definitely stood out to me because especially a lot of news today that talks about homeless people with mental illness causing so much chaos chaos in the streets. So it's nice to know that this bill is supposed to end June 30th this year. So they're extended to 2027, which is amazing. I feel like, you know, there's definitely should be more resources for people who cannot afford it to be able to get treatment for their mental illness.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely.
3: I like
4: how they're going to give a raise to the home care workers and the bonuses for health care workers since they were literally the superheroes of the pandemic. So I agree with that. I'm a little eh about the what is it? The um takeout alcohol. Um, I know there's still small businesses struggling out there, but I feel like no one is really going to. I don't think anyone does that anymore because I know that was a big thing. The big thing during COVID, during quarantine, because no one was Mm -hmm. allowed to dine in. Yeah. But now since everything's open, like I feel like everyone just goes inside to the bars and drinks rather than taking out alcohol.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I feel like I might do that on like a, you know, one random weekend, but it definitely want to be consistent thing. Yeah. And also what you said about the small businesses too, like, um, obviously the takeout alcohol was put in the budget as an attempt to like draw people in to businesses make them you know spend a little bit more money especially for you know smaller businesses around COVID that lost a lot of money but how much of any of this like takeout delivery alcohol sales are going to go to more like small businesses rather than like applebee's or something like that right because applebee's and their alcoholic beverages are pretty popular um especially i feel like people would think to order takeout from applebee's more so than they would from like some random like Mm -hmm. bar on the corner you know so i i see the vision for that but i'm just not sure how much it's truly going to benefit the small businesses how much it'll benefit the economy as well as far as like how many people are going to actually be buying this we'll just have to wait and see because i'm i mean i'm not really sure if i would do that very often or if anyone that i know would do that very often because part of the fun for us at least is like going in side going in person and like sitting down and like doing like drinking in the restaurant or bar or wherever it is and eating the food Mm -hmm. along with it because we weren't able to do that for so long so now we want to go in there and do it and have fun in person yeah
3: Mm -hmm. i mean i know like when when covid started when they had that whole you know you get alcohol if you get food thing Mm -hmm. there was this like in my area of Brooklyn, like there was, like a lot of people lining up, like you know, sitting on the streets with alcohol in their hand. I'm like, you know, I, I have like little fries on the side, but that was such a big thing back then. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's going to, like, you know, continue on today, because you know, just walk and get a beer, you don't need to buy food with it. But I also like how this bill will also up, up, um allow, you know, will spend about one billion dollars over the next fiscal year to increase eligibility for child care to subsidize to 300% of federal poverty levels. That'll be like close to $83,000 for a household of four, which is amazing. Families are struggling, you know, kids have to go to school. It's definitely hard times out there.
0: Yeah, definitely. And we saw how child care was really impacting uh, people, especially when they, like during covid if they had COVID or if they had like an immunocompromised child or parent or significant other or whatever it may be to where they weren't able to work and then they weren't able to pay for that child care or say like they were working and daycares and schools were shut down because of COVID and they didn't have anywhere to send their child because they couldn't afford mm-hmm. the child care. So obviously that's a huge issue that touches a lot of different things other than just like daycares. Yeah. Uh, Another controversial section of the budget is the bail reform, which we talked about that a little bit on the show before about Hochul proposing some bail reform. But through this proposal, the budget's actually going to follow through with that and give judges more power to jail people who were repeatedly ticketed for just minor theft or property damage. Uh, So when I say controversial, obviously Democrats were opposing this, uh, saying that it would lead to more poor and minority New Yorkers being put in jail while they were awaiting trial. Uh, especially people that uh, couldn't afford the bail and being put in jail and then not being able to pay it or, you know, so on and so forth, and having to go to the bail bond places like we talked about before and then getting roped into just like a bunch of debt. And then it just kind of builds on itself. Um, and through this, New York is also going to add more firearm possession crimes to the list of offenses as well that could be put into this to put people behind bars um that hasn't been added yet but it it will be added in the future so i mean i don't know what you guys think about the bail reform i think that the uh current bail that current bail uh laws that we've been using i think have been more beneficial than this bail reform will be just to refresh anyone's minds uh, we talked about this i think uh, like three weeks ago or so uh, basically right now well before the state budget was passed what what judges were required to do was take into consideration uh the person's ability to pay the bail before they set it you were also allowed to do like basically a payment plan for lack of better words where you would pay uh like maybe like 10 percent down uh and then continue to pay throughout so that you didn't have to go to a bail bond place and rely on that sort of stuff uh but i think the I think having to take into consideration the person's ability to pay as well as how that debt would affect them and their lives is really, really important. Um, Just because like during COVID, we saw how many people were struggling with money and people are still struggling a lot because COVID is still happening. And now we're adding this on top of it. What do you all think?
4: Yeah, I remember when we talked about this. Like a couple of weeks ago, Michaela and I both agreed that we were like 50 50 on it. Yeah. I kind of still am. Um, I but I really like the idea that you know if it's someone that has like a misdemeanor or something, mm-hmm. then I like how they can get the bail and their families can do a payment plan. Yeah. But we don't know what type of like what that's gonna go towards what cases you know because if it's they've been arrested for like multiple things. Yeah. And they just keep getting arrested then i don't wouldn't feel comfortable with them still you know getting bail and especially a payment plan for them to just pay it off i mean i guess it, yeah. it i guess is what like what the case is going to be so I well don't know. for
0: this like specific one for the um the judges now have more power to put people in jail who were repeatedly ticketed like you said so multiple offenses but it's just a minor theft or uh, property damage so it's not okay. any violent crimes Um, that's, what's really like gnawing on me is that it's just, and obviously I don't want to say it's just minor theft, but it's (laughs) nothing, it's not like it's, you know, Mm -hmm. anything that's actually violent crime. So that's, I think another thing that Democrats were opposing as well is, uh, you know, who is this really going to be affecting?
3: Yeah, I like, cause, like, the original bill included gun, like, gun charges, like, you know, possession of guns. So I do like how they're focusing on minor crimes. So I think it's way better than, like, you know, gun control issues, like, you know, that type of thing. Um, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not 50-50. I'm kind of, like, for the old bail mm-hmm. reform still, but I don't know how much the interest would be for the families because that wasn't really mentioned. Yeah. Because, like, I know, like, you know it might be like a certain rate right now where I know like they sometimes spike it after you know yeah paid um ten percent I don't know I'm in prison but I kind of like watch those like you know 60 days in and I mm-hmm. see like you know what they talk about but it's like I don't know if it's gonna like, you know you start like you know 50 percent interest you know gradually over time like that it's like 45 percent interest so like I'm I'm not really sure if I'm for the old one or the new one I just really hope it's beneficial for everybody
0: yeah yeah Well, uh, some other things that this bail, I mean, that this uh, budget is going to go towards is overpaid, unpaid utility bills and overdue rent. Um, So for a lot of families that during COVID like didn't have didn't have like a stable income or anything like that, this money is going to kind of cover that. Two hundred fifty million, though, is it sounds like a lot, but it's, when you take into consideration how many people are in the United yeah, States mm-hmm. and how many months of unpaid utility bills there are, yeah. it is really not that much. No. Yeah. So, like, uh, for me, I I rent a house and I split my utilities with six other girls. We're all in one house together, and I usually end up paying, like, over a hundred dollars combined with all of my utilities for for utilities a month. Um, and that's just a one person in a household of six other people, so that's like $600 every month, well $700 every month between all of us for all of our utilities. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, when you go into more households and like people with kids and all of that sort of stuff, It's just gonna get more and more expensive.
3: Totally. Like there are certain areas in my part of Brooklyn that, you know, houses are going for a million dollars. It's like, what the heck? Mm -hmm. I remember when it was like two fifty. Like (laughs) it's like it's like insane. There's like a a studio apartment that's down the block Mm -hmm. from me and it's going for like close to like one point five. And I'm like, Whoa. This is like no grass, no like, you know, scenery or anything. It's just the building itself. Yeah. So there needs to be more laws focusing on like, you know, controlling the rent prices and house, houses prices, especially when you're not getting what you, you, know, what you're buying is not really worth what you're getting,
4: mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, I know I've been looking for like an apartment search, either a studio or one bedroom, and it's not. Oh like. yeah. They're getting... so expensive. Mm-hmm. New York is just expensive in general. Mm-hmm. So now everyone wants cause my family wants to go to Florida one day, but now Florida's starting to raise their prices. So, I mean, and especially with utility bills, that just adds like a good three hundred from like your what you're paying for rent. Mm-hmm. but for the for the two hundred and fifty million to assist, um, is that just for anyone or is it a certain income of class?
0: It is going to be determined, I believe, by um like eligibility as far as like what your unpaid bills are. Like, I believe it will go to the people who have the most first. Like we're gonna tackle that first um but like i said i i don't think 250 million dollars is gonna cover everyone i feel like later down the line we'll probably see this maybe expanded um to add a little bit more to that because i think people are gonna get a little upset when you know they're expecting maybe some unpaid bills to be covered and then it ends up getting kind of just like overlooked because they don't have the funds in the budget to do so uh of course there's more money going towards overdue rent it's 925 million uh which is a huge jump from the 250 million that again, you know, it is a huge number obviously, just shy of a billion, but people have been struggling with their rent payments for 2 years now. Yes. Um so you have, we have to think about like how much is that really? Yeah. I can't even imagine how big that number is. Yeah,
3: especially with these jobs aren't paying as much as these the rent prices. You people have to like, you know, bundle up with other people mm-hmm. to afford a little small place. Yeah. There should also be like more laws to enforce, you know, the minimum wage to increase. I know Starbucks, they recently had like protests to start like unions like for people to be paid more, have more health insurance. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be more laws enforced for that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, that's going to wrap up our discussion on the budget. Uh, We kind of went through all of the bits of it that were the most relevant. Uh, We're going to be right back on 88.7 FM. We're going to talk about some book banning. Abigail's going to let us in on that story. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University.
2: All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees.
1: All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
0: And we're back on 88.7 FM. Abigail... What is going on in Florida right now? Please let us know. What
4: isn't going on in Florida? <laughs> so Florida has the third largest number of school book ban incidents. Florida has banned more than two hundred books for a public school districts since last July. According to a report from an advocacy group of writing professionals, this makes it the third highest number of incidents among other states in the US. So, um, PEN America, who is made up of novelists, journalists, editors, and poets, um, playwrights, and publishers said in a report that Florida has had 204 instances of book banning in seven school districts between July of 2021 and March of 2022. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed into law a bill that makes it easier for parents to challenge books and instructional materials that they don't approve of and could potentially increase the book banning in the future supporters of this legislation says it gives parents more involvement in their children's education. And some of the books that have been banned are The House of Spirits, The Handmaid's Tale, The Rape of Nanking, and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. So Becca, Michaela, what are your thoughts on this new legislation of book banning in school districts?
0: So when I hear that This is being defended because they're saying that this is giving parents like a more active hand in the education. I would have to disagree with that. This goes so far beyond education and this goes into students' personal time and the way that they choose to educate themselves on their own time outside of school. And uh, so many of the books that are being banned through florida and just nationwide are by authors that are women and or people of color as well as members of lgbtq community so this is not only an attempt to silence these voices from our lawmakers our school districts and our parents but it's also a attempt to limit the children and the teenagers in florida schools from trying to expand their knowledge and all that i know like for me personally coming from a small school district in Tennessee, who actually, uh, that is a state that is has uh, caught some controversy for banning books itself. Um, you know, you're not really exposed to that much new ideas or anything like that, uh, just through schooling itself. And I had to do a lot of, like, personal learning on my own to understand a lot of stuff that was not only going on in the news and in politics, but just about, like, people themselves. Um, and so reading and have being able to like have these books uh, available to you i think is really really important part of not only like growing up which people are doing in these in these florida schools you know growing up and but also just like expanding your mindset to a bunch of different things becoming more accepting as a person all of that so i think like not having these books in schools and not being exposed to things like uh Like, for example, uh, like I said, in Tennessee, Mouse was pulled. That's a graphic novel depicting the Holocaust. They said it was too graphic. Um, I think that's something that, you know, kids should learn about. Obviously, Mm -hmm. the Holocaust, if it is, you know, a little graphic, maybe you could watch your kids on your own. Or, you know, for, for a teenager in middle school or a high schooler you know, what is too graphic, honestly? Like, Yeah. <laughs> you guys have seen, like, the high school bathrooms and the graffiti that they put in there. Like, what is too graphic? So for me, honestly, I think this is just, like, I think it's inappropriate yeah. for yeah. parents to have this sort of hand. Well,
3: yeah. Well, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I went to a traditional Catholic school from elementary to high school, so, like, I already had censorship of my life, <laughs> so I wasn't really exposed to certain books. Even if we were, we had to, like, cut a little paper slip Mm -hmm. sent home to our parents like let us sign it to us (laughs) to read the book in school oh my god so even if there was a book that wasn't available at school I just looked on PDF and like you know read it on there Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe that certain books shouldn't be available to kids under 18 specifically The Hands Made Tales because I I saw the 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 show on Hulu when Mm -hmm. I was like in high school and quite honestly not having that understanding of like you know the politics at that time I feel like you know adult me would probably would not prefer younger me to watch that but I definitely see the importance of having books that are telling real stories educating people to be allowed in you know schools Mm -hmm. I I do I understand like you know it should be a parent's job to supervise you know their child but let's be realistic I didn't have supervision as a child so like I I (laughs) can imagine like another child who has no like no parents like you know off working doing this stuff not really watching their kid and watch your reading and you know watching so like I do see why Florida is upping this because you know parents don't really have that supervision that they may think they would yeah i mean
4: i like i'm for like okay don't the kids don't read Handmaid's so i understand that but like mouse and now they're starting to ban mm-hmm. of Mice and Men*, which is one of the books i read in high school like yeah, sixth grade so not like late high school early high school mm-hmm. it's like stuff like that that i don't agree with like you said this is history from like the author's version of like their eyes their storytelling and that's just another thing where students are going to struggle not to learn about and if they really do want to learn it they would have to learn it outside of school when they shouldn't be doing that because you're in school to learn these things so i agree with you said that well so let me go back to you being elementary school at like at catholic school was there ever a book where your mom your parents didn't sign the slip
3: no, there was. They always had permission. If we didn't have permission, you'd be sent to another classroom. That you know that were allowed PG books. Mm-hmm. But we. But other than that, even watching films, like music and stuff like that, we had to have permission from my parents before we were allowed to be exposed to that. The books were taken away from us. Like you know, after you know, you read in class, you give it back to the professor, a teacher at the time. It wasn't like, you know, we had control of, you know, keeping that book, all, like, you know, yeah. the whole entire mm-hmm. time of that, you know, year or whatever.
0: Yeah, I think for a Catholic <laughs> school, you more so expect that. Yeah. But like, yeah. for a public, public school, school. Mm-hmm. that's, like, a little different. Yeah.
4: Like, I under- did your school allow to you re- to read Harry Potter? No, you didn't have that. So, um, which I understand because it's a Catholic school and yeah. that has witchcraft. But if, like, this school in mm-hmm. Florida were to ban Harry Potter, you see, like, that doesn't... Make really any sense to me because you're a public school, yeah. And like Catholic schools, obviously, a, th- we understand why, but for public school, like my public school had Harry Potter,
0: yeah, mine did too. Yeah, and I grew up reading the books mm-hmm. throughout
4: school, so for now, to just like kids not even be able to read that, that's it is crazy to me like all the books that we've read and now that's not being offered to the kids now.
0: Yeah, definitely. And this isn't just like a Florida issue. This is like I said before nationwide. Texas and Pennsylvania are the two states that are above Florida right now in book banning numbers cuz Florida has the third highest. Honestly, that doesn't surprise me. Texas and Pennsylvania being <laughs> <laughs> being one and two um especially Texas uh and there's lots of other states that are kind of following suit in Virginia. Uh, several books on LGBT experience have been pulled and like Tennessee, like I said before, and we're probably going to see this expand through other more red leaning States as well. I feel like once parents uh, kind of get a, kind of get a whiff of this from other States, they're going to be quick to try to implement it within their own school districts. Yeah. Um, f- like personally, I think that being able to read books ab- on Uh, LGBT community or about people of color's experiences just like uh, you know just hearing their stories and uh, like personal issues opinions like whatever it may be uh, I feel like that could be beneficial to really anyone even if you're not a member of those communities even if you're not a person of color even if you're not queer like reading those stories could help you not only understand the people around you more but maybe even understand yourself and the role that you play in that. So, I mean, self-education has always been a big thing for me and, like, education, especially in more red-leaning states and, like, uh, just availability, especially for, like, lower income uh, students is, like, really, really top level of importance for me. Um, Obviously, it could be argued, I think, that uh, these students could read this on their personal time, that they could go out and buy the book or have their parent buy it or, like, order it from somewhere and have it shipped to them. But for lower income students you know that's not always a resource that everyone has and you have to keep that in mind especially in uh states like florida where they have a large number of low income students um so for a lot of people like if it's not in the school then it's just not available yeah so that's a big issue as well well you know with this book banning we're just gonna have to we're gonna have to wait and see you know if more states jump on this and if florida ends up banning more books i know that it's they're like still attempting to ban more like they're not done just because they're third highest number of incidents every week
4: it seems like they're coming out with a new list to ban Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and i i do think we'll see more uh down in the southern area or maybe even uh a little west like near texas as well um so yeah we'll just keep We'll keep an eye on that we'll keep everyone updated as far as book bannings go even though i think the state of new york is pretty safe from that mm-hmm.
4: i hope so if they start to ban like twilight hunger game <laughs> i'm out if I'm they moving. ban twilight it's over <laughs> it's over i'm coming <laughs> i'm leaving
0: all right you guys so if you're unaware uh the month of april is sexual assault awareness month and in light of that one of our reporters here at wrhu rachel hadjik she uh, sat down with Wayne State University Law School professor Nancy Catalupo to discuss campus sexual assault as well as Title IX and one of Professor Catalupo's most recent articles. So thank you to Rachel for you know sharing this with us and shining some light on Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So we're going to go ahead and throw it to Rachel. We'll be right back, 88.7 FM WRHU.
1: I'm Rachel Hyatt, joined by Professor Nancy Cantalupo, who is an assistant professor of law at Wayne State University Law School and is an expert on Title IX, sexual harassment, and gender-based violence in education. Today, we'll be discussing her latest article titled, The Title IX Movement Against Campus Sexual Harassment, How a Civil Rights Law and a Feminist Movement Inspired Each Other, as well as her further knowledge and education pertaining to Title IX. Professor Cantalupo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you,
5: happy to be here.
1: So as you have taken on different professional roles that focus specifically on the use of law to combat discriminatory violence and sexual harassment. What led you to pursue this area of study, especially within college
5: campuses? Well, I actually started this work as a student activist myself. I was in college and there was a problem that my classmates and I perceived with how the university was addressing or actually not addressing campus sexual assault. And so we did some protests and got the attention of the administration and ended up launching basically years and years of work on the issue. We rewrote the policies, created a victim services office on the campus, just did basically rebuild the whole system from the ground up. And so I was only involved in that as a student for the first semester of it, because I was graduating. But then I stuck around as the founding director, director of the university's Women's Center. And I stayed in that role eight years, the last four of which I went to law school and was able to study Title IX campus sexual assault, first of all. But really, it became clear that the main statute that was going to be the most powerful way to prevent and remedy sexual harassment and sexual assault and gender-based violence on college campuses was really Title IX. And so I started really studying Title IX in law school. And then when I graduated from law school, I did a little bit of time working at a law firm, but I quickly went back to education. And when I was an assistant dean at a law school, got back involved in the issues of campus sexual assault. And then as a result of that work, started to research and write in the area. And because because I was researching and writing in the area, and I was one of the few legal academics that was doing that, when the Obama administration decided that they wanted to really get involved and increase enforcement of Title IX in the case of campus sexual assault, you know, they looked around and they found my articles. And so that's how they sort of got involved. And then in part, Because of their involvement and also in part just because it had been happening for decades, right? And many students had the same experience that I did as a student, which was we protested things that were happening on our own campus. But in the early 2010s, what ended up happening was that students started to organize nationally and they started to make connections that what was happening on their campus, Was happening on other campuses, and when you realize that something is a national problem, you look for national level solutions, and those are often laws. And when they looked around, they found Title IX, and they also found my articles on Title IX, and found what the Obama administration was doing. Although they were not completely satisfied with what the Obama administration was doing, so the first thing that they did was put more pressure on the Obama administration to do even better. So that's a short version of my path in this, but also how it's connected to the movement.
1: And when talking about kind of your journey and experiences up to your recent article, you talk about situations involving sexual assault on specific campuses and how racial and gender discrimination have affected the outcomes for victims in most cases. What were some other things your research sort of entailed to support your explanations? And how is the process overall of sort of choosing and looking for certain scenarios to include in this article?
5: Right. Well, that article is really an attempt in a relatively short fashion to give a brief history of the first 10-ish years of the Title IX movement. I mean, to be clear, the movement is still going and it's going strong. And really that was just about the sort of first years of it. And I'm personally am excited to see what comes in the future. But really, the kinds of things that I decided to focus on in that article were the sort of big topics often generated by the backlash against the movement. And the movement was very powerful and got a lot of attention. And people who didn't agree with what the movement was saying quickly started to organize in opposition to it. And they have a whole series of Of arguments about why Title IX does not apply to sexual harassment or why it shouldn't apply to sexual harassment or why sexual harassment as the student movement was saying it occurs doesn't actually occur that way. So there were a whole series of narratives that were sort of generated by that movement, the backlash movement. And because I was in the best possible position, of anyone in the country because I had spent so much time already researching and writing and thinking about these issues. By the time the backlash got started in real force, I had already been working on this issue for somewhere between 20 and 25 years. So I really focused on the arguments and the narratives that they were generating. And most of them are incorrect as a legal matter, and many of them are incorrect as a factual matter. So I really focused my research on both of those aspects, on sort of demonstrating the inaccuracy of those narratives. And some of that involved sort of legal analysis, such as much of the work that I did related to the standard of evidence, whether it should be a preponderance of the evidence standard of proof, which is what I and every administration prior to the Trump administration believed, or if it should be a quasi-criminal or criminal standard, which is what the Trump administration pushed. And so for that type of issue, really my research focused on the legal analysis and the sort of legal purposes behind selecting standards of evidence. Why do you select standards of evidence and what are they supposed to achieve. And also, why is it that the preponderance of the evidence, standard of proof, is the standard of proof that is being used across the board under civil rights laws? And what does it mean that the Trump administration was pushing a different standard for one slice of one civil rights law that made it inconsistent with all these other civil rights laws and that created Created a problem for people who have intersectional experiences of discrimination, you know, so if you experience both race and sex discrimination, which is the experience of most women of color who experience sexual harassment, you know, race and gender are often so inextricably intertwined that you simply cannot even talk about the phenomenon without acknowledging that it is both sex and race discrimination. So trying to slice out one part of Title IX from this overall approach was extremely problematic from a legal perspective. That research really focused on the legal analysis. But then there were other things that I did during the last 10 years or so, which I didn't actually talk that much about in that book chapter because there wasn't really that much time. But there's also this narrative that there's just not that much sexual harassment out there or it's not that serious, right? And this was the kind of narrative that we saw in the faculty sexual harassment context where faculty were sexually harassing their students, especially graduate students. And the accepted idea was that this was faculty who were saying things that students didn't like or disagreed with in class and that this this was somehow about free speech and expression. And when I am my co-author on a series of pieces, when we looked into this, we realized, no, that's not what these cases are about at all. The majority of them involve physical contact, which has nothing to do with speech and expression. And not only did the majority involve physical contact, but the majority also involved serial harassers, you know, faculty who were harassing many, many victims and doing so in a physical fashion, right? So that ended up sort of debunking the narrative about what faculty sexual harassment looked like. To be honest, that's not what we set out to do, but that's where the research led us. And so that's what we ended up
1: doing. And earlier you mentioned about President Obama's administration, and since you consulted with President Obama's White House task force and participated in a U.S. Senate roundtable involving campus sexual assault. Could you maybe discuss more on your work with the federal government and how those experiences impacted some of your future goals?
5: Sure. Well, to be clear, all of my work with the federal government has been done pro bono. It's all been volunteer. I have not been paid by the federal government to do any of this stuff. And that's even true with regard to when I was a negotiator related. To the Cleary Act back 2013 to 2014. So that was the most formal position that I was in, but that was an unpaid kind of thing, and I was doing it as a volunteer. So the reason why it's important for me to say that this has all been done on a volunteer basis is because it's really just about helping the government to have access to the best possible information. And yes, they can read my articles, but There's lots of stuff that I've learned over the years that doesn't get into the articles because you can't put everything into the articles. No one would want to read them. So it's been great that various government officials have reached out to me in a variety of ways. For the most part, that's been the way that it's happened. Someone has come across my articles and has wanted to ask me more questions about it. It's not always the case. You know, sometimes I have a a burning issue that I think the federal government in particular should be involved in. And I want to make sure that they know what I think about the issue. So I'll reach out to them. But for the most part, it's all sort of designed to make things better and to help them to do a good job in this space because they're the enforcers of the law.
1: And when talking about Title IX investigations, you mentioned the imbalance between between victims and criminal defendants' rights in hopes of not punishing innocent people. And that, quoted from your article, equal protection-based goals compel Title IX systems to give both accused harassers and victims equal party status and procedural rights. So could you further elaborate on some of the continued goals and definitions of Title IX today and also how your own work has been relevant to these definitions and sort of developments over time?
5: Much of my work on Title IX focused in this direction because this is the, thing that is going to make Title IX a real help, or if we don't follow this path, it's going to mean that Title IX is really a disappointment. So from my view, Title IX has incredible promise. And the reason why it has incredible promise is because it is a civil rights law. It bases discriminatory violence, in this case, gender-based violence, in a civil rights context, right? In a context of looking at how is it linked to and intertwined with other forms of inequality. And we know, we've known for decades now, that gender-based violence and other forms of discriminatory violence are a cause and a consequence of inequality. But particularly in terms of gender-based violence, in the United States, As a legal matter, we have dealt with gender-based violence almost entirely as a criminal law matter. And the criminal law is not about equality. That's not its purpose. And there's nothing about how it's structured that increases equality. And I'm not trying to be unfair or critical of the criminal law. Different laws have different purposes. And the criminal law has its own purposes, and they're not about equality. But we. We know that gender-based violence is deeply intertwined with inequality. And so therefore, we need a law that is oriented towards achieving equality. And those are civil rights laws. And Title IX, I'm not saying that other civil rights laws couldn't do this, but Title IX has been sort of a first mover in this space. We just don't think of workplace sexual harassment as involving criminal conduct in the way that we've determined that it does in education, right? Not just on college campuses, but also in K through 12. So it just means that Title IX gives us an opportunity to see how we can use a civil rights law and a civil rights approach to solving and ending the problem of gender-based violence as a form of discriminatory violence. So it's not just about education. If we can do it in the context of Title IX in education, we can learn lessons that can be expanded to other places in which gender-based violence is a problem and where there might be a possibility of using a civil rights, equal protection-based approach. And that's outside of education, but it's also outside of gender because we could start to look at other forms of discriminatory violence and start to say, oh, well, what can we learn from how we've used Title IX and use it in these other contexts with regard to these other civil rights problems and other discrimination problems to increase equality across the board.
1: And finally, to reiterate that your article specifically addresses campus sexual assault cases and Hofstra University is a campus and community on its own that enforces Title IX, could you describe the importance of being aware of this information within your article, as well as where our listeners can maybe read and access it along with some of your other work?
5: Almost all of my articles are available on the Social Science Research Network. So if you do a Google search for my name and SSRN, then the The page will come up and you can download them for free. It's an open source kind of platform. So that's where folks can get access to most of my articles. There are a couple of things that I've written that won't show up there, but that might actually be helpful, particularly to people who are on a campus and are looking to do something specifically related to that campus, because much of the promise of Title IX, the way to make that real is on extremely local institutional level. So it's an institution by institution fight. You can use the law and the law is extremely helpful, but you also have to do the work in the context of that specific campus. So one document that I was heavily involved in creating is the American Bar Association put together a recommendations for practice for student conduct cases, so investigations of gender-based violence on college campuses. And that is pretty expansive Because even though the project sort of started out, what should we tell investigators to do when they have a case where primarily one student is accusing another student of sexual assault or dating violence? But a campus cannot. Worst time to make policy is when you have an active case. You need to have the policies and the procedures and the people in place before the case happens happens. And we know from the statistics, the case is going to happen. So we wrote those recommendations in a very expansive fashion. So there are a bunch of steps that we advise campuses to take prior to having any idea that they have a case and acknowledging that they will never have that case. But that's a pipe dream. You might not know about it, but that doesn't mean the case isn't happening and it's a problem that you don't know about it. And the fact that you don't know about it could create additional problems beyond just the fact of the violence and the fact that you have this happening sort of under your watch so that document I think you can find that by googling American Bar Association recommendations and gender-based violence but listeners can feel free to look me up and email me and I will send them the link because I think that it's a very useful resource and it's open and free and it's an excellent resource for individuals campuses to look
1: to. And once again, that was Professor Nancy Cantalupo, Assistant Professor of Law at Wayne State University Law School, and we discussed her most recent article titled The Title IX Movement Against Campus Sexual Harassment, How a Civil Rights Law and a Feminist Movement Inspired Each Other, along with her overall knowledge and education about Title IX. Professor Cantalupo, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University.
2: All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees.
1: All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
0: We're back, 88.7 FM WRHU. Thank you again to our reporter, Rachel, for sharing that wonderful and super enlightening interview with us. And again, thank you, of course, to Wayne State University Law School professor Nancy Catalupo for uh, being able to come on with us this morning and, you know, just discuss sexual assault Title IX. Uh, once again, this month is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So throughout the month, you're going to probably hear a couple of more feature interviews on our morning show Um throughout the week about this topic uh, lastly for our show though as we're wrapping it up Michaela is going to share with us some spacex news yes
3: yeah, so in space news spacex launched three businessmen their astronaut to international space station last friday for a weeks day this would be SpaceX's first charter to flight orbiting lab after two years carrying astronauts to space from NASA. An American, and Canadian, and who ran investment real estate and other companies arrived at the stables stations last Saturday after paying fifty-five million dollars each for the rocket ride. Accommodations and meals were are included. So hypothetically, if you had if you had about fifty five million dollars, will you, Abigail and Rebecca, be interested in spending this type of money going to space for a week? if it wasn't this expensive would that be interesting to you also how would you feel about you know space only being accessible for the rich also interesting nasa is still working with russia despite america aligning itself with supporting ukraine and backing up businesses with russia do you guys feel that nasa working with um nasa working with russia is a good thing or what are your reactions to this um well if i was 55 million dollars rich i
4: i wouldn't purchase that my first purchase um (laughs) i would probably do the whole house and car thing and then most likely i would have money left over then maybe i would do that Mm -hmm. but i mean i would hope food and everything else would be included with that price um however i would i would pay for a seat for SpaceX to spend a week in space all the things that goes on to this plan um are not cheap so it makes sense to why they're they're doing this more for people in higher class that can afford it um However, I did not know that Nassau was still working with Russia on this. Um, after, like, the whole Russia invading Ukraine, the majority of U.S. companies have pulled back on projects with them. But I guess for Nassau, this is just strictly business, like, no emotional tide. So maybe that's kind of why they mm-hmm. decided to still work with them. And just because this is a very big project. So if they were to pull back, like, from working with Russia, maybe they would just have to start back from square one and they really don't want to do that so i don't know i really don't know how i feel about
0: that yeah uh well as far as the 55 million dollars goes i feel like there's so many better things that we could be spending that money on than sending like rich people to space obviously it's their money but when you have so much money i feel like you know i mean at least if i had that much money Mm -hmm. there's like a hundred things i would do with it before going to space personally um also when you're sending this, like rich population up into space. Now we have to take now we have to think about like, how is that going to affect the environment up there? You know, are we bringing like more climate change issues just into space? Like, are we going to mess that up as well? So that's like a whole thing too. um i don't I don't honestly know if I would want to go to space. Um, it's kind of it's kind of scary up there from what I've seen on <laughs> movies and video. Uh, especially like it's just so dark Uh and you're just surrounded by like dark nothing which sounds really really scary to me it's kind of like um like if i'm in the water or something and you know how like when you can't see the bottom Mm -hmm. of the water i hate that i hate that so much i hate anything that's like deep so space i feel like would just be like a giant dark ocean and that does not sound appealing to me at all
3: yeah, I love NASA. <laughs> you so, made it yeah. so scary. <laughs> <laughs> I hate swimming. I don't like being in the water. But I love space. And I love NASA. I love the whole idea of space travel. But I wouldn't be able to spend like $55 million. to go. Of
4: course yeah. you do. She wants to be a pilot, <laughs> right? <laughs>
3: but it's also because it's so uncomfortable to sit on the rocket. You're basically on the floor. Like, you know, you're like you're, your knees are bent. And you mm-hmm. have to like yeah. hold that position for like more than 24 hours. And I know for five minutes, I'm like, okay, I am to get up. Yeah. <laughs> So it's 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 it sounds cute in theory because like what else are you gonna do besides float around and eat fancy food? (laughs) Well, that's I
4: mean I'm all about like exploring new things and I'm very adventurous. So Mm -hmm. I would love to see space. I just really want to see Earth from space. Yeah, like just the thought of just seeing earth and the water and like the grasslands you know what i mean i just like that image
0: i feel like that might make me freak out because if i saw that i'd be like oh my gosh earth is so small Small. and we're all so small and nothing matters and then i would like freak out um i think the only thing that i would enjoy about going to space is the zero gravity like floating around but there's like places you can do that yeah on earth it's not the same yeah. How, you don't know no, that it's not <laughs> the same
4: like i mean there's a difference when floating in like a random room in new york and then actually being
0: i mean okay yeah that's true but i feel safer doing it on earth
3: yeah i remember like you know kick the rocks in the moon like you know collect rocks for a day like you know play oh, volleyball yeah like something fun like that besides yeah. sitting in there like you know watching the scientists do their thing
4: the only thing I wouldn't do is travel, like, go put in an astronaut suit and travel outside. Oh, my God, that, no. That I will not yeah, do because no. I feel like something will just pull me away. <laughs> yeah. Even though there's, like, nothing. Because you're, like, floating. I feel like I wouldn't be able to control that. But, like, so I just have to be inside the rocket. I'll see from the, you know, the window, and then that's it. I'll go back down. Yeah.
0: Territory. What is that movie? Where, I think it's called, like, Gravity or something. With
4: Sandra Bullock and... Yeah. yeah is that what it's called? Gravity. Yeah. Think,
0: yeah. That I think that movie just scared me too much. Don't it's, they, like something happens you watch to them movies. <laughs> <laughs> like. I know it's like probably not realistic but i don't know i feel like there's just so many things that could go wrong in space yeah
4: but that's, like, life every day. Yeah. Anything can go wrong with even riding just, like, a roller coaster or, well, like, I don't driving ride. down I don't ride street. roller coasters. Oh, my goodness.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I would probably want to, like, see an alien or, like, you know, another dimension. Like, come on. I want to see something when I'm up there what? with that much bit of money. Yes, That's <laughs> scary. Yes. Like, let's be entertained. Let's have something to bring back to Earth. Like, you know what? I have experience. <laughs>
4: oh, my goodness. Um... That's a little scary.
0: But Yeah, Michaela, I mean, that's that's a little too yes, adventurous. A little too much, yeah.
3: <laughs> I mean,
4: Michael Strahan did it, so everything turned out fine.
0: <laughs> well, I don't think we'll ever have to be concerned with that because we are not in this population of high income yeah. at least not not yet. Who knows? You know? I mean, maybe Michaela will get like mad rich doing I love that doing like, piloting. I and just, then pilot herself yeah. to space. I just
3: couldn't like mm-hmm. sit there for five minutes, like you know, yeah. like, position, like you know, stare around like okay everyone like what do you guys talk about you guys like be talking or be like sleeping
0: yeah i don't know i feel like for 55 million dollars they had to make it like at least a little bougie in there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like i don't know really specifically what they're doing but i feel like i feel like a rich person paying 55 million dollars would not be down to just like sit like in a cramped little spot like, I feel like they had to make it, like, a little nice in there for them. Yeah. Like, obviously, they have to be in a certain position, and it has to be, like, a certain setup for it to work. But I feel like maybe, like, the seats would be, like, padded. Like, it's, like, cushiony or something. 55, definitely you <laughs> <laughs> Or
4: you bring, like, books and you read. Yeah. Mm, like, yeah. just stuff like – I yeah. feel like it's – it'll be a nice, like, self-reflecting moment because mm-hmm. you're there <laughs> by I yourself, and, space. Space. and then you'll just look at the window like, oh, my gosh, I'm in space. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I – I've seen um, this show called The One Hundred, and it's like one of my favorite <gasps> shows. And they put them in like cryo sleep to go up into space, yeah. and then they like they sit in the cryo sleep for like hundred years or something. I feel like maybe, like I feel like that would be kind of cool to get put in, to get, like put to sleep and then go up to space, and then you're just like asleep up there.
4: That's scary. I mean, I mean, so you're basically in a coma.
0: Yeah, I guess so. But it's like, one that you can wake up from at any time.
4: Mm, that's kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are just talking so much scary things, and I'm over here like, <laughs> okay? Um,
0: I would yeah. get put in cryo, I think. I'm, I'm going to
4: be having nightmares tonight. So thanks, guys, <laughs> for putting all these images in my head. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, you know, we can we can dream about going up into space, but – until this gets until like SpaceX or NASA expands any of this sort of stuff to more people, it will just continue to be a dream. Sadly. <laughs> well, that's going to wrap up our show this morning on 88.7 FM WRHU. Abigail, Michaela, fantastic having you on as always. Uh, great points of view on all of the stories we talked about this morning. And also, shout out to Dex, who has been. Uh, working the board for us and engineering the show which is a little bit new but he's been doing a great job uh so you will tune in uh next week monday 8 to 9 a.m 88.7 fm and make sure to listen to the rest of this week as well we got uh tuesday wednesday thursday and friday all 8 to 9 a.m on 88.7 fm wrhu